Welcome to the National Community Church Podcast. We're thrilled to be able to share this weekend message with you from Dr. Mark Batterson, our lead pastor. If you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes or go to theaterchurch.com. Well, welcome to National Community Church, all seven campuses. We are in a series called Peacemakers. Last weekend, Pastor Joshua shared a little bit about our church plant in Baltimore. This will be our second network church. Last year, we planted Pastor Curtis Parks Bridges Church in Nashville. Next year, Pastor Joshua in Baltimore, uh, believing that God is going to tap some of you on the shoulder to be a part of that church plant. Let me share a little update. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, challenged our church to flip the blessing. Do you remember this? Seven years ago, Covenant Church in Dallas, Texas, gave us a $100,000 gift in five minutes flat. It was unbelievable. And the Lord put it in my spirit, God, would you give us an opportunity to flip this blessing someday, somehow? And so when Pastor Joshua shared this vision for Baltimore, I felt like the Lord said, this is it. Now, I'll be honest, sometimes when you preach something and you ask something like that, you kind of wonder how it's going to turn out. I've got some good news. Add up the pledges and the gifts. We are at $189,787. Um, <laughs> now, listen, if you want to get in on this IPO, <laughs> ncc.re slash Baltimore, you can do that. Uh, I, I love it. We are not only going to flip the blessing. Come on, we're going to do a double flip. Yeah. I love it. All right. If you have a Bible, you can turn to uh, the Gospel of John. We'll get there in a minute. But let me back up the truck just a, a little bit. Uh, there is a phrase. I'm going to put it on the screen. May the Lord judge between you and me. Amen. Now, you, you may have seen this before. It pops up in the prophets, in the judges. But the first instance may be a little marital dispute in the book of Genesis. Now, this is pre-law, uh, pre so polygamy is still being practiced, okay? Sarah, unable to have children, so she gives her handmaid, Hagar, as a secondary wife to Abram. Hagar has a son named Ishmael, and as you might imagine, the whole thing turns into a soap opera. The Bible is not boring. So many complicated emotions, relational tensions. Long story short, you got to love this. Sarah gets upset because Abram does what she told him to do. She says, this is your fault. She says, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. Basically, they play the blame game just like we do. No one wins the blame game. Everybody loses the blame game. So how do they resolve it? Are you ready for this? They don't. And that's incredibly frustrating if you are like a person like me who wants to fix everything in five minutes flat. But this is not a problem to solve. This is a tension to manage. And life is full of situations like this relationally, politically, emotionally, spiritually, what do you do when you don't agree with someone about something? I think Sarah and Abram actually set precedent here. Sarah coins this idiom, this adage, may the Lord judge between you and me. Well, what does that mean? Well, for starters, I'm not omniscient. 
Uh, I, I am not perfect. I'm not smart enough to figure everything out. We are not going to see eye to eye on everything. And I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. See, we want to assign blame. We want to figure out who's right and who's wrong. But there are situations, there are issues, there are problems we cannot solve. Do you know that Sarah and Abram managed this tension the rest of their marriage? At some point, we've got to stop playing judge and jury. And we've got to agree to disagree and let the Lord judge between us. How do we do that? Well, we live in a democracy where we enjoy the freedom of speech, the freedom of worship, the freedom of press, the freedom of assembly. In this kind of pluralistic culture, we are not going to see eye to eye on everything. Listen, most Supreme Court decisions are not unanimous. They're split decisions. Here's what I'm getting at. When we find ourselves in these kinds of situations... How do we agree to disagree? Because we've got to be better at this. And that's what I want to talk about this weekend. I think Jesus sets the example in John chapter 4. Let me set the scene. Now in hermeneutics, there's a very simple principle. Text without context is pretext. There is so much context happening in John chapter 4. Cultural, racial, historical and so there's so much context happening in this little sitcom that John shares. And uh, I think we've got to understand what's happening here. So Jesus is on his way from Judea to Galilee. The most direct route was right through Samaria. But here's the catch. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian, the, the Jews would take a roundabout route in order to sidestep uh, Samaritan soil. In other words, they would go out of their way to go around Samaria to avoid contact with the people they had a prejudice against. Now, this racial tension went back 700 years. When the Jewish people were taken captive by the Assyrians in the 7th century B.C., the Jews of the northern kingdom... Uh, intermarried with the Assyrians. So they're half Jew, half Gentile. And the Jews of the southern kingdom, well, they, they considered them half-breeds. And, and so they felt like the Samaritans had sold out. The Samaritans felt like the Jews were a little uppity. And the crazy thing is they worshiped the same God. But they did it in different places and in different ways. They had been segregated at this point for 700 years. With that as a backdrop, let me jump in. Verse 1. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. So his approval ratings are off the charts. Opinion polls, all-time high. Popularity is peaking. When Jesus learned of this, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. Verse 4, it was necessary for him to go through Samaria. Let me stop right there and say this. No, it was not necessary for him to go through Samaria. Because everybody else went around Samaria. And there's a little bit of shock and awe here that we miss. 
because most of us are Americans. If you were a first century Jew, your reaction to, the, to this would be, oh, no, he didn't, with a little finger wag, okay? Why would Jesus do this? I want to tell you a story. I want to share five principles, five practices that I think can help us navigate our differences, navigate our disagreements a little bit better. One of Teddy Roosevelt's favorite pastimes was something he called a point-to-point hike. Now, Roosevelt found no joy in hiking trails that were already blazed. That would be boring. Roosevelt loved getting off the grid, loved getting off-road, and so he would set out for a particular destination, and there was one simple rule. You could not alter course. It was a point-to-point. You had to hike in a linear line towards that destination. If you came to a wall, you climb over it. If you come to a stream, you swim across it. You don't go around, you go through. Now, one day, the French ambassador paid a little visit to the president, Roosevelt, thought it might be fun to take him on one of these uh, point-to-point hikes. The ambassador would later say what the president called a walk was a run. During that hike, they came to Rock Creek. I have a hunch that this was very much planned. The president started taking off all of his clothes right down to his skivvies. And the French ambassador, not sure exactly what to do, a little bit reluctant, but follow suit. Paparazzi would have had a heyday. French ambassador would later say, I too, for the honor of France, removed my apparel, everything except my lavender kid gloves. Why, in his words, did he not remove his gloves? If we should meet ladies. I can think of a lot of other things you might want to keep covered. American president, French ambassador, became fast friends, part of his tennis cabinet, so to speak. In fact, this is fun. There's an 83-year-old granite bench in Rock Creek Park that is dedicated to the French ambassador as the only person who could hang with Teddy Roosevelt on a hike. All of that to say this. Can I suggest that discipleship is a point-to-point hike? That spiritual growth is a point-to-point hike, that the spiritual journey that all of us are on is a point-to-point hike. The way we grow up spiritually is not by sidestepping or shortcutting or circumventing Samaria. The way we grow up spiritually is through tough times, by making tough decisions, by having tough conversations, by exercising tough Love, and no one modeled this point-to-point approach to life better than the one in whose footsteps we follow. Let me fast forward. Jesus does a point-to-point hike through Samaria, and he has this life-altering conversation with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. Now, you can read all about it in John 4. He ends up staying in Samaria for two days, which is really interesting. And takes a tremendous relational risk. But the net result is reconciliation. The net result is a revival that breaks out across Samaria. Why? Because Jesus didn't just hunker in a Jewish bunker. He ventured into no man's land, took a little bit of crossfire, and showed us how to resolve 700-year issues. 
What I want to do is pull five practices, five principles from this story. These are rules of engagement. I'm going to rapid fire these up front, and we'll get as far as we can go. One, check your ego at the door. Two, identify least common denominators. Three, let your conscience be your guide. Four, don't be dogmatic about disputable matters. And five, love people when they least expect it. Number one, check your ego at the door. You have got to operate in a spirit of humility. What, what, what does that mean? Well, as soon as I'm omniscient, I will let you know, but I would not hold your breath. The way you disarm people is by sharing your doubts. The way you disarm people is by sharing your faults first. You have got to level the playing field. You've got to put yourself in their shoes. That's what the incarnation is. Most of us would rather share opinions than bear burdens. Yes? Most of us would rather be right than righteous. Reading Malcolm Gladwell's latest book, Talking to Strangers, in that book talks about this phenomenon called the illusion of asymmetrical insight. It's cognitive bias. Uh, simply put, we perceive our knowledge of others to be greater than their knowledge of themselves. Oh, my. We, we thin slice people, and, and we quickly judge that book by its cover, and we often get it wrong. But let me flip this script because it's so fascinating. This may be the first instance of a spiritual gift that's called a word of knowledge. This is when the Holy Spirit gives us prophetic insight into a situation or into someone's Life In this instance, Jesus somehow knew that this woman had five broken marriages. And it was that word of knowledge that convinced her that he was who he said he was. That he was, in fact, the Messiah. So listen, we've got to operate in the gifts of the Spirit. But I love what Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, said. Uh, he said, Emotional intelligence is a wonderful adjunct faculty to the gifts of the Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's function in the gifts of the Spirit. We, we need prophetic help when we are speaking into people's lives, but let's make sure we do it with some emotional intelligence. Here's what I know for sure. Most people are far more complicated than we give them credit for. And a little humility goes a long way when it, go, when it comes to agreeing to disagree, you have got to check your ego at the door. Number two, you've got to identify least common denominators. Wasn't that a wonderful video? I think that's what, for such a time, is that what that group does. Listen, uh, blood is thicker than water, the, the blood of Christ. And so um, love the way that that group models what they found a least common denominator. That, that Listen, love it. Now, in mathematics, this is um, what two fractions have in common, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's true of human fractions and human factions. Um, there is a very real relational, uh, racial tension uh, in this story. The woman accentuates their differences of opinion. She says, our forefathers worshipped on this mountain, referring to Mount Gerizim. Uh, but you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where it is necessary and proper to worship. This is so normal for us to identify our differences and then accentuate them. And so they're worshiping the same God, but in different places and in different ways. And Jesus is like, the issue is not geography. And by the way, we, we do the same thing. If you don't worship where I do, 
National Community Church. If you don't worship the, the way I do, with my hands like this, or maybe on my knees or whatever, then we aren't sure if you're really worshiping at all. Right. Come on. Yeah. we, we got to outgrow that. Um, Jesus says this. He finds a least common denominator. He says the time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father how? In spirit and in truth. There will always be things, lots of things, that we do not see eye to eye on. This is true of God-fearing, Bible-believing, Christ-following Christians. In case you haven't noticed, lots of denominations. And these denominations have a tendency to divide us. Why? Because we major in minors. And this is where I might remind us that long before there were Catholics and Protestants, long before there was the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., Long before Paul wrote his epistles, there was a, a uh, the, the church rallied around a simple statement of faith. The creed consisted of three words, Jesus is Lord. Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Now, that seems pretty simple, but it was really quite revolutionary in the Roman context. It was Caesar Augustus who declared that a census be taken, which is why Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That same Caesar declared himself Pontifex Maximus, or chief priest of Rome, in 12 AD. Renovated 82 Roman temples, reinstituted the sacrificing of animals to Roman gods, And upon his death, Augustus was declared the son of God. Under Diocletian, the Latin word dominus became an official title of Roman emperors. It was a title of sovereignty. Essentially, Diocletian is Lord. Do you see where this is going? Anything less, anything else was treason. So declaring Jesus is Lord was a frontal assault on Rome, which may be why a lot of Christians ended up in Roman Colosseums. And we have a little saying at NCC. Not about the name over the church door. It's about the name that's above all names. Hashtag same team. We, we need lots of different kinds of churches because there are lots of different kinds of people. But let's remember Ephesians 4 5. There is one Lord, yeah. one faith, One baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Jesus is Lord. Can we agree on that? One one footnote. Jews and Samaritans had something in common. His name was a guy named Jacob. Um, And he was the one who built the well where they're having this conversation. And so, yes, they had been segregated for 700 years. But guess what? Their common history went back thousands of years. We forget so quickly. I know, about 400 years, uh, Protestants and Catholics have a little different history. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater because for about 1,600 years, we had a common history. Let's remember that. All right. Uh, Number three, let your conscience be your guide. Let me say two things up front. First, we live in a culture that in many ways has sacrificed truth on the altar of tolerance. And two, we we live in the epicenter of political correctness. 
If I have to choose between political correctness and biblical correctness, I'm going to choose biblical correctness seven days a week and then twice on Sunday. Now, I've got to be humble enough to admit that it's my interpretation. But if it puts me at odds with culture, so be it. Martin Luther said, my conscience is taken captive by God's word. To act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. We've got to live according to our convictions. And uh, those convictions come from a conscience that is fine-tuned to Scripture and fine-tuned to the Holy Spirit. Let me go back to John 4. Remember, Jesus' popularity is peaking. Question, when everything is going great, what do you do? You keep doing what you've been doing, right? You stay the course. You do not upset the apple cart. You definitely don't do anything that is going to change people's opinions of you. That is, of course, if you're making decisions based on opinion polls. Jesus did not operate with that compass. That is not where his convictions came from. He was walking to the beat of another drummer. His name is the Holy Spirit. And that's why so much of what he did was counterintuitive and countercultural. If you live your life like it's a popularity contest, you are going to be all over the map except Samaria. I think one of the most important questions we need to ask and answer when it comes to peacemaking is this. Who are you going to offend? You can please all the people some of the time, some of the people all the time. You cannot please all the people all the time. If you fear people, you will offend God. If you fear God, you will offend people. I live by this little mantra, thou shalt offend Pharisees. <laughs> Jesus was not afraid of offending self-righteous religious types. By, by the way, I would define self-righteous this way. It's someone who would rather be right than righteous. So let me ask a couple of questions right here. Are you living according to your conscience or according to culture? Are you, uh, who are you more afraid of offending, God or people? And would you rather be right or righteous? You better be honest with yourself. I think those diagnostic questions can help us as we try to live a spirit-led life. All right, number four. You're doing great. Number four. Don't be dogmatic about disputable matters. Now, we have a little preamble to our core beliefs. It's something that Rupertus Maldenius said 400 years ago. He said, in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Now, the challenge, of course, is that we define different doctrines as being essential and non-essential. But, but I love this approach to theology. I remember at the University of Chicago studying this uh, philosophy of science, and, and it's this simple idea that we don't know what we don't know. And that the more we know, the more we know how much we don't know. Right. And I think we need a little bit of critical realism when it comes to our theology, especially the non-essentials. Romans 14.1 says this, don't pass judgment on disputable matters. Well, what, what is a disputable matter? Well, it's something that the Bible is not black and white about. It's a gray area. And this is where we've got to let God be as original with others as he was with us. 
This is where we've got to give God some elbow room and give people some breathing room. I think there are two mistakes we make in this regard. We condone what's wrong. Come on, let's not do that. Or we condemn what's right. Let's not do that either. Romans 14, says, Blessed is a man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. This is where we need an extra measure of discernment. This is where we need an extra measure of grace. This is where we have to try so hard to be unoffendable. And, and I think this is where we've got to put Ephesians 4, 3 into practice. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Yeah, one little caveat right here. In 1 Corinthians 8, the Apostle Paul says it's okay to eat food uh, sacrificed to idols. Now, I, I'm guessing that has not kept you up at night lately, right? You know, this isn't an issue for most of us, but, but this was a hot-button issue for a, a kosher Jew who followed strict dietary regulations. And listen to what he says. Be careful, however... That the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Well, what's a stumbling block? It's an attitude or a behavior that causes another person to sin. It might not be wrong for you. It doesn't violate your conscience. But those are instances where instead of exercising your freedom... You exercise restraint by not exercising your rights. Why? Because you love that person. And you don't want to do something that's going to set them back. I mean, these are sticky issues. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, You know, I think there are a lot of people who make a decision to abstain from alcohol for one reason or another. For some, it might be that that's a potential addiction and need to steer clear. For others, it's just for a Uh, another reason Um, but it's a matter of conscience the bible does not say do not drink it says don't be drunk with wine and so what we have to be careful to do is not redraw lines when we add amendments i think that's called legalism now listen if that's your conviction then i want to respect that i think it might be a good thing But we've got to be very careful that we aren't dogmatic about disputable matters. Number five, love people when they least expect it. You know this is true. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Let me tell you what love is not. I'm I'm not sure our culture defines it this way. Love is not you approving of everything I do. Love is not you agreeing with everything I believe. If it is, Laura and I are in trouble. (laughs) Pick any hot button issue and there are differing opinions. And we want to know who's right and who's wrong. But the end goal is not just to be right, it's to be righteous. And I think that looks like loving everybody always. I think that that's loving regardless. Now, again, love is not approving of or agreeing with everything someone does or believes. That's called marriage. That's called parenting. That's called friendship. 
Let me give you a definition of what it is, and it's an equation. And it's in John's gospel, first chapter, 14th verse. It says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Love equals grace plus truth. Now, grace means I'm going to love you no matter what. Truth means I'm going to be honest with you no matter what. That is a tremendous tension to manage. But that is what we're called to. I want to invite our worship teams to come. Let me close with this. Uh, last Christmas, my brother got me a slack line. Do you know what this is? It's a very frustrating thing. <laughs> it's basically a tightrope, and uh, you try to walk across it without falling on either side, and uh, you are constantly rebalancing. I, I just think that's such a beautiful picture to me of what it's like trying to navigate disputable matters. This is such a wonderful picture of what it's like trying to exercise grace and truth. We are constantly rebalancing, but, but I think we need to cut each other a little slack. I work hard on this, pun intended. <laughs> At its core, I think love is about taking relational risks. And I think we read right over it in John chapter 4. But listen, men and women did not have a conversation like this in that day and age. And so I think two things are happening here. And it's beautiful to me. I think Jesus is elevating the status of women. Come on, let's get past this. And then I think he's loving this woman when she least expects it you can kind of there's an element of surprise to the story and I think this is when love is is at its best I, I mean have you found that if you get a gift for your loved one on their birthday you don't get any credit for that now you might get docked something if you forget you get credit when you do it when it's not expected now, I don't think we tend to think of risk in relational terms but isn't that how every romance starts you risk rejection isn't that how you have hard conversations you risk disagreement jesus did not tiptoe through the tulips he says go call your husband she says i don't have a husband he says you have spoken truly you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband he didn't pull any punches because that's not doing anybody any favors yes we need to fill gaps with positive assumptions. Yes, we need to catch people doing things right. But you also have to take some relational risks like this one. You know what? If you really want to help someone, sometimes you have to risk hurting them. Yeah. Now, you better speak the truth in love. I think timing is significant. But this is this woman's deepest hurt. This is where there is brokenness. This is the taboo topic. And Jesus is like, we're going to go there. Because what you conceal, God cannot heal. Yeah. And so bottom line, this is where we need prophetic wisdom. I mean, this is where we need spiritual gifts. This is where we need the help of the Holy Spirit. This is where we need to love people when they least expect it. So much more. I would love to say, but I'm out of time. What relational risks do you need to take this week? I know it's Thanksgiving week. That might change the context a little bit. What, what relational risks do you need to take 
this week? Would you check your ego at the door? Would you identify least common denominators? Would you let your conscience be your guide? Uh, don't, don't be dogmatic about disputable matters and love people when they least expect it and see what God does. In Jesus' name, amen.